Yeah, happy Easter, but also happy April Fool's Day. A little weird. Uh, For as long as I've been a pastor, this is the first time uh, Easter Sunday has fallen on April Fool's Day. And so I was like thinking of like, is there like a funny way to connect the resurrection of Jesus with April Fool's Day that's not going to get me in trouble? And I couldn't think of one. Um, Couldn't think of one. But uh, I think there's something very poetic, poetic about Easter landing on April Fool's Day, on a day when our culture celebrates kind of hoaxes and pranks. I heard uh, Yelp has something going on. I'm sure Google will do something cute. Uh, Reddit has got all all sorts of of things going on. Uh, On a day when that's what's going on in our culture, our church is actually deliberately confessing and celebrating the miracle, the idea of of, of a man coming back from the dead. The same day when our guards are up, when you don't want to be the April fool. So when someone tells you, oh, we're having a baby or I got fired or like something crazy, your first instinct on April Fool's Day is like, you're just kidding. Like, I'm not going to. So our guards are up to be skeptical. And yet today the church is gathered, believing that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. On a day when social media feeds will be full of fake news and and humorous little lies, we remember that the resurrection was a truth so powerful and compelling that the first eyewitnesses of the risen Lord were willing to be mocked, beaten, and even martyred for their faith. Um, I saw a great quote this week from a man named Chuck Colson. If you don't know who he is, uh, he's a guy who was working in and alongside the Nixon administration, and he actually went to jail. He's one of the people who went to jail for the Watergate scandal. Now, as he was facing arrest, as, as, as the trial and investigation was going underway, and as he understood, we, I'm in trouble, we are guilty, um, a Christian evangelized to him, gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He started reading it, and he became a Christian in the midst of the Watergate scandal. And he explained later why he believes in the resurrection. And I thought this quote was so profound, so powerful and encouraging from a guy who went through Watergate. And so this is why he believes in the resurrection. Uh, This is what he said. The quote's going to go up on the screen. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. I'll even say martyred. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You keep telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Impossible. And if you smirked and giggled a little bit, totally appropriate, right? (laughs) Think about this. They had everything to lose, these 12 guys. They couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. And yet the apostles, the women who witnessed the empty tomb, hundreds and hundreds of the early church members, they did not deny the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They truly took it to the grave. It was that compelling, that powerful. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is a historical faith. It is rooted not just in spiritual language. We're rooted not just in religious tradition because your parents are Christian and your parents' parents were Christian and this is what we do as a culture and as a community and as a family. No, Christianity is rooted in historical people 
in actual events that took place in accordance with the word of God. A faith and a truth that was given to us by the testimonies of his people so that we, that we might believe and be forever changed. Today, we're going to look at Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you, have, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his matchless word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went into the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. The word of the Lord. It was early Sunday morning. Jesus was crucified on Friday and buried in Joseph's tomb. Some of the women who were closest to Jesus went there with spices to anoint his body out of Jewish tradition. This is what they did for funeral services. They would anoint the body with these spices. They were not expecting an empty tomb. They were fully expecting the dead corpse of Jesus. Now, because many of us know the story It's easy for us to overlook the reality of their situation. For us, we know that Jesus has risen from the dead. So the time between the death of Jesus on Friday and the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning, that feels like a footnote, does it not? It feels like a footnote, just like a commercial break or the intermission of a play. But those three days, must have been some of the longest days, longest nights for these women, for the disciples and the followers of Jesus. They must have been filled with sorrow and tears and pain beyond compare. Take a moment and just try and put yourself in those shoes. Let's try and imagine what they were going through. Mary, when the Bible says Mary, the mother of James, it's also Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, James was Jesus' brother. Mary had just watched her own son crucified at the hands of Pilate. Her own beloved son hanging on a cross, nails piercing his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns pressed down upon his skull, blood dripping down his face. Imagine what it was like for Mary to hear her son crying out on the cross, I thirst. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out and gasping, it is finished. And his own mother there, with nothing she could do to help him. Nothing she could do to relieve his pain. Nothing she could do to save his son, her son. Or imagine Mary Magdalene and the disciples and all of Jesus' followers as they had just watched their Lord mocked and beaten and killed. To Peter, Jesus was his hero. To Mary Magdalene, a woman of, of, of low estate, scorned by the community. Jesus was her redeemer, giving her a new purpose, giving her a new identity. He had given all of his followers new hope, a new life, a new mission. To them, Jesus was invincible. How could someone who had raised the dead feed the 5,000? I mean, healed countless and countless people, a man who was able to walk on water and cast out demons, how could Jesus just die like that? I mean, just last week, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were praising him, just losing their minds in celebration and joy. And now it's all over. It is all over. They must have been thinking this was not the way it was supposed to pan out. It seemed like the Roman and Jewish leaders had won. Jesus was dead. The disciples were scattered. Whatever movement, whatever kingdom renewal, whatever flourishing for Israel and the people of God that they were hoping for and working towards and praying for, whatever they thought they were a part of, it was all over. All hope must have been lost. Do you know what Peter was doing? The chief apostle, the spokesman, he was planning a career change. He was planning to go back to fishing. That's how hopeless it was for the disciples that was going on in their minds and in their hearts as Jesus lay buried in a tomb. All the women could do now was honor Jesus with spices and herbs to, to offer a decent funeral for him and hopefully move on. But as the women arrive at the tomb, they find that the stone had been rolled away and they enter in, not knowing what is going on, but it was empty. And they are shocked, and they are perplexed, and it is not one of awe and wonder. They're not filled with joy. They weren't thinking about the resurrection. They're confused. Had someone stolen Jesus' body? Was it Rome? Was it the Jewish leaders? And they are at a loss. Now, I don't want to disparage the women or the disciples because we, I would certainly have done the same. But here in this moment, there's actually a great lack of faith. A great lack of faith. You see, Jesus had already foretold everything that would happen. He told them Judas would betray him. And he did. He told Peter that you will deny me before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter did exactly that. 
when Jesus explained and talked about Jonah. Jonah, that prophet who was running away from God and and he ended up in the belly of a fish for three days and then was spat out. Jesus says, you know what, guys? I am the greater Jonah. Jesus said that he would be in the earth for three days and he would rise again. But the women and the disciples, all of his followers, they didn't get it. They heard Jesus talk about his death and resurrection, but they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. They heard him. They knew he said that on multiple occasions, but they didn't actually believe he was going to be crucified and die. And when he was dead, they didn't actually believe he was going to rise again. There was a glaring lack of faith here. The very fact that the women went to the tomb to anoint his body with these spices, expecting a dead body, is an indication that they didn't actually believe what he said when he talked about the resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days... I'll build it up again. They didn't believe that. But what happens next? These two angels arrive, and they are bright and shining in their appearance, and the women fall to their faces in fear. And the angels correct the women. And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, Jesus says that to his disciples in Mark 9. The angels are quoting Jesus himself. And he's asking, don't you remember the words of Jesus? Don't you remember what he taught? Church, this is the heart of the passage right here. This is the core and heart of the passage. You see, the angels correct the women for their lack of faith in seeking Jesus among the dead. They declare, he is not here, he's risen. He's risen. Now, that phrase, he is risen, in the original language, the grammar is in the passive voice. And you know what it means to be passive. It means to not do anything, right? When we are passive, we're just still, right? We're not doing anything, we're not working, we're not earning, we're not performing, we're just chilling. They say the key to really being financially successful is passive income, right? Passive, I need to get my way to some passive income. Anyways, um, it's not about money. Easter Sunday, bad time for the pastor to talk about money and wanting passive income. All right, that that wasn't in the manuscript, and maybe we can edit that from the recording. Um, But this phrase, he is risen, it's in the passive. And it's actually a very special kind of phrasing. It's in the divine passive. And whenever there's a divine passive in the scriptures, it's saying that God is doing something. That God is the one at work. And whoever's on the receiving end of that passive verb is receiving all of the work of God. Well, what do we mean here? That he is risen. It means that God raised his son Jesus from the dead. That Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. See, a lot of times Christians, we think Jesus raised himself. But no, the Father did. He was raised by the power of God. This is something, the resurrection is something that happened to Jesus. And so theologians call this the most powerful divine passive in all of Scripture. For just as the Father sacrificed his own son on the cross. In the resurrection, we see the father vindicating his own son. Do you see that? The father sacrificed his son on the cross. Why? To atone for our sins. But in the resurrection, the father vindicated the righteousness, the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. 
by not allowing death to hold him captive, by not allowing death to have the final word, but being victorious and raising his son, Jesus Christ. Not only do the angels correct the women for seeking Jesus in the tomb, we also have, we also have an exhortation, a command. And the angels, they tell the women, remember the words of Jesus. This is so important, church. They say, remember the words of Jesus. He's not here. Don't seek the living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen. And they, they don't say, go look for Jesus. Or, hey, he's right around the corner. We're going to introduce you to the risen Lord. What do the angels say? They say, remember the words of Jesus. Remember how Jesus told you he was going to suffer. He told you that he would be crucified. And he told you and he promised that he would rise again on the third day. Remember that. Now, why is this so significant? Because the angels are telling the women and they are telling us today that the way to understand the resurrection is by faith in the word of God. Let me say that again. The way for us to understand the resurrection is by faith in the word of God, okay? You're gonna see something here. The women are gonna walk away with great faith, amazed at the resurrected Lord without having seen him. Why? Because of the power of the word of God. The work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts as we remember the words of Jesus. And that's so important because so many of us here today think that we are at a disadvantage from the early Christians. We think, man, Martha, Mary Magdalene, James, Peter, they had such an edge to be followers of Jesus because they saw him. They actually were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so we tell ourselves that maybe I'm not that gung-ho, that serious, that committed of Christian. But we say, hey, I didn't see the resurrected Jesus in the same way they did. In this story here, Mary, Joanna, Mary Magdalene, they walk away with resurrection faith without being eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. Why? because they remembered the words of Jesus. The way to understand the resurrection is by faith in the word of God. You don't understand the empty tomb. He's telling the women, because you forgot the words of Christ. If you would remember his word, then you would see what you are experiencing would all make sense. You see, church, there are two ways for us to live. There are two ways for you and I to try and live this life. Either your life experiences become a lens for you in reading the scriptures, okay? Your life experiences are going to define how you understand the word of God, who Jesus is, his presence and his work in your life. But your experiences will filter that. Your experiences will be a lens. Or secondly, the word of God will be a lens to your life. Okay. And there's a huge difference. The second way to live, the gospel way to live, is to allow the word of God to explain to you what is going on in your life. How do you process your relationships? How do you process your suffering? How do you understand the sovereignty of God being un unfolded through the daily, regular events of your life? Either the word is a lens to your world, or your world and experiences are a lens to the word. Think about this. The women had heard Jesus' words promising a resurrection, but they also saw his death. They knew his word, but then his death seemed more real. Does that make sense? They knew Jesus says, I'm going to come back. 
right? Three days, I will be raised again. That was his promise. That was his word. But then they saw and experienced his death. And that seemed more real, more concrete, more absolute and final to them than Jesus' word and his promises. And so to them, even though Jesus said he's coming back, he was dead. And it was over. So they were in despair. They were perplexed. All the women thought that they had lost him. And they thought that they had lost everything. But the angels are telling the women, you've got it backwards. Remember his words. Yes, you saw his wounds as he hung on the cross. But the only way his wounds make sense is if you remember his words. The only way the wounds of Jesus make any sense for us, have true and full, beautiful meaning for us, is if we remember the words of Jesus. He himself said, He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He himself said that on the third day he will rise again. And once they remembered the words of Jesus, it all clicked. You see that? Once they remembered the word, not just circumstance, not just experience, not just what is going on, but they paused and they reflected on the word of Christ. It all made sense. They understood the cross. They understood the resurrection. All that they saw, all that they felt, all that they experienced, all that fear and despair at the death of Jesus, it made sense because they saw the gospel, the word and the promises of Christ being unfolded before their very eyes. Brothers and sisters, is the word of Christ the lens for your life? Or is your life the lens for the word? This is our struggle. You see, many of you right now, you're going through some difficult times in your life where many of you are burdened by difficult times and experiences in your past. And we're struggling to make sense of these. We're asking God, why did you allow me to go through these experiences? They were so painful, so hurtful. Perhaps you're failing out of school as a college student, or maybe your business is underwater or your job is at jeopardy and you are in crisis mode. Or maybe you've had a bad breakup and there's so much scar tissue you have not healed yet. Or maybe you experienced a painful divorce. Many of us have lost people we've loved and we haven't been able to heal. Those are very real experiences in our lives. We all carry those experiences, those wounds, that scar tissue. Here's the question then we ask. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And when you can't go, when you can't process, when you can't answer that question, you start doubting God. Wait, God, how are you supposed to be good and allow there to be so much bad and pain in my life? And it's in those moments when you need the word of God the most. You see, if your pain is the lens to the word, if your pain is your lens to how you see and understand God, it will distort who God is it will distort how you understand the world. You see that? If you only think of God in terms of your pain and your context, you won't see God clearly. You won't see him clearly. You'll conclude either he doesn't exist or he doesn't love you or he doesn't care. That makes sense. With all of your pains, with all of our wounds, without a clear understanding of God's word, we'll look at him and say, why? 
Do you not love me? Are you not able to do anything? Do you not care? And those questions will haunt us and distort our understanding of God. But if you're a person of the book, if you remember the words of Christ and you remember the word of God as the lens through which you see your pain, that's when true healing, that's when true understanding begins. Because you see and you will hear the word that God is Emmanuel, that Jesus is with us, that he loved you with such a sacrificial and intense and holy love that he took on flesh to dwell among us. That Jesus knows your pain because he has experienced it to the full. That he is a God who can sympathize with you in your weakness. Because Jesus is the man of sorrows. See, when you go to the word with your sorrows and you say, God, tell me who I am. Explain to me what I am experiencing. Not just from my heart, not just from my context, not just from my biased perspective, but from your word. You will learn that that God doesn't waste any of our pain. He doesn't waste any of our failure, but he uses those things to teach us to trust him. That in our weakness, we experience his strength. We can see and hear that God is a God who's able and mighty to work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, may the word of God be a lens for your life. That's what happened with these women. They were perplexed. They were at wit's end in pure terror and loss. And the angels appeared and said, remember the words of Jesus. And everything changed. Let's go back to that text again for our final point. Just how does the resurrection change us? And let's go to verse 8. Luke tells us that they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They became evangelists. They became missionaries. They were testifying that Jesus isn't dead, that the tomb is empty, that he is risen. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. As the women remembered the words of Jesus, what happened? Their sorrow turned to joy. Their confusion turned to clarity. And remember again, they didn't go and find Jesus. They didn't go and and touch Jesus like Thomas requested. He says, I see you, but I need to touch you those nail-pierced hands to know that you're real. They weren't like Peter who had breakfast with Jesus. No, these women had amazing faith because the words of Christ were enough. They saw the empty tomb. They remembered the words of Jesus and they believed that he was alive. And so they left the tomb and they, they, in faith, tell everyone that they can meet. They go back to the apostles and the disciples and tell them that Jesus is alive, that he is risen. Never mind that those guys didn't believe them. They should have, right? Never mind. They're like April Fool's joke ultimate, right? You guys must be making this of idle tales. That's what they accuse them of, right? Peter himself, he ran to the tomb to go and investigate, right? We don't have to make much of them. That's for a whole nother sermon. But I want us to see how much the resurrection changes us. 
how it changed these women in holistic and powerful ways. I fear that too many of us don't see the relevance of the resurrection. For us, it's a doctrine. For maybe, for us, maybe it's a truth that we profess, but it's not truly life-giving. We prefer the cross. We see in the cross, we think of our sins, and we, we go to the cross. We want to kneel to the cross, right? We have all of these cross-centered songs. We want to be led to the cross. To us, the cross seems more personal, more powerful, more redeeming. But I want to tell you, it is the resurrection that changes everything. It's not just the cross. For without the resurrection, there is no victory. The cross is just the means by which Jesus of Nazareth died. There is no promise of a new life. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's no payment. There's no atonement for our sins. Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we are still in our sins. The resurrection is the proof that the payment Jesus made on the cross was enough. Once again, the resurrection was God the Father vindicating the Son. When Jesus declares that he is the Savior, when he declares that he's the Son of God, when he declares that he has the authority to forgive sin, if Jesus did not rise again, if the Father did not vindicate him with the resurrection, all Jesus is is a lunatic. All he did was make false promises to try and get people to follow him. Because nothing that Jesus prophesied about himself came true. But by raising him from the dead, the father saying, yes, my son, is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Everything that he says is yes and amen. All of his promises are true. So believe on him. That's the power. That's the relevance of the resurrection. Think about the women. Think about the disciples. When Jesus died, they thought they lost everything. They lost their identity. Mary lost her son. They lost their Lord, their hero, their mission and the purpose. Think about Peter, James, and John. These disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. And now they thought Jesus is dead. I am wandering, right? They just became unemployed all over again. They thought they lost everything. But when Jesus rose, when that tomb was empty, they got everything back. Do you see that? They got everything back. Every, this is redemption. Mary got her son back. Their identity was restored. Their hope was restored. Mission was restored. They went back and they were able to tell everyone about Jesus again. It wasn't a big hoax. It wasn't a big lie. It wasn't a false narrative or a false memory. They got everything back. And this is what Jesus does. So many of us feel like we have lost our way. We have lost our purpose. We have lost our identity. And what Jesus wants to do in his resurrection is restore unto you the life that God the Father has designed for you, that God the Father has purposed for you, that he wants you to live in blessing and in flourishing and with joy and power and conviction, all the things that death wants to take away from us, Jesus restores through his resurrection. 
There's a second way, a final way that the resurrection changes us. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. I'm just going to read this for us. This is what he writes. He's kind of playing argument. He's saying, what if Jesus did raise from the dead or what if he didn't? And this is a closing argument. He says, but in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Do you know what the resurrection secures for you? Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will you and I. Okay? What hope, what audacity do we have to promise one another everlasting life? We haven't been there. We haven't experienced it. Who are we to say, if you die, don't worry, that's not the end. Who am I to say that at a funeral? Yes, your loved one has just passed away, but fear not. They're living eternally. Who am I to say that? Jesus can say that to us. Why? Because he went to the grave and back. And what he is saying is just as he defeated the grave, just as he conquered death, and just as he rose again, so shall all of those who live and die in faith. His resurrection promises your resurrection. Eternal life, this is not just hype. This is not a Christian sales pitch. Just to get our movement going, there is proof. There is a promise because we have someone who went before us, who died and rose again. In his resurrection, we are promised ours. Brothers and sisters, this is the word and promise of Jesus. You see, 2,000 years ago, he told his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And even Peter, even his own mother, they forgot those words. And when Jesus died, they were in disarray. We are in a very similar predicament because after Jesus walked amongst his disciples for 40 days. He ascended again. He ascended to the heavens, but he said, I will return. I am coming back and I'm coming to judge the living and the dead. That is his word. That is his promise for us. Here's the question. Do you believe that? In the same way he made good on his word regarding his death and resurrection, do you believe today, right now, that he will make good on his word to return? That's what it means for us to live in faith right now, believing that Jesus will return. And I think we have a lot of examining to do in our hearts. Do we live in a way that is in, in line with the reality of Jesus's kingdom? Jesus's not just finished work in the past, but his promised work in the future, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. What is more relevant than that? Friends, what are you obsessed with right now? What are your Google searches all about right now? Is it a vacation? Is it a new car? Is it a new phone? Is it a new job? Is it a new grad program? There are all of these things that we find so relevant to us, so important to us. Brothers and sisters, give them six months. Give that thing you are pursuing two years, five years. I guarantee you, it will expire. Your passion for it 
its impact and meaning in your life, it will soon and quickly expire. And yet, we consume ourselves with those things. But Jesus Christ, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. What he offers to you is so meaningful, so relevant, so transformative right now. My prayer is that you would see that. My prayer is that we would see Jesus, that we would hear him, and we would believe on him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your good work in our lives. We thank you that in order for you to adopt us and save us and redeem us, you did not spare your only begotten son. You sent him to live a perfect life. You allowed him to die a sinner's death and you raised him up from the grave all so that we might be redeemed, that we might become yours. We thank you so much for this gospel. And Father, I pray that right now, this good news would pierce our hearts, that this good news would produce in us joy, that this good news would change our lives. We believe in you, Lord. Help us to truly live out the faith, live out the belief, live out the truth that you have set before us. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.